Okay, we're looking uh, at Revelation chapter 9 as we continue in our sermon series in Revelation. Revelation 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like the horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair were like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have king as over them. They have as king over them the, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Hebrew is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. It's a quite a crazy passage. And so we're going to be thinking about the spiritual realm which this passage depicts for us. Now, on one hand, we always are dealing with the spiritual, and we know that, but on the other hand, we can assume that and sometimes even assume it away, where we just take part in worship and we hear and we learn and we receive this teaching and then we think, what must I do? Or we say, I can do that, as if there was no spiritual component to our lives, just what is in our minds and emotions. See, we believe that the spiritual realm exists. But because it's invisible, we can often forget about it. 
And as a result, we do not grow in our understanding of the spiritual realm. You know, this week happens to be the Halloween weekend. It's coincidental that I'm talking about all the spiritual. I didn't plan this. I'm not that genius. Okay? But some of us may think of spirits in terms of ghosts and goblins. But the reality is all of us have spirits. And not only that, the spiritual realm is all around us. The spirit of a person, that's, that's very difficult, notoriously difficult to define for anthropologists and sociologists. But for our purposes, I think all of us, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial when I say we all have spirits. And so with that, um, to help us understand more of what the spiritual realm is like, I want us to think about the human brain. Because from the brain comes all this activity, and likewise, from the spirit comes all this activity. Okay? I'm just trying to get us set up so that we could better understand our passage. So I'm going to be talking about the brain now. It's going to sound like a biology lecture, but we're in church, remember, okay? Um, the brain, it is this amazing organ. It could only have been created by God. The average brain weighs about three pounds made up of 85% water, but it uses 20% of a human's total body energy production. The brain has 100 billion brain cells. They're called neurons. They look like a, a tangled web of, um, if we spread it out, but most of them are squeezed together, packaged in the brain like a crumpled up piece of paper. From this ball of neurons that we call the brain extends more neurons down the spinal cord all throughout the body so that it can sense its environment and cause movement and action, right? Now, the billions of neurons that are in our, cell, in our bodies, some of them are connected, but when there's activity, you know, communication, those connections are actually not physically connected. There's a little space between these neuron endings where chemicals transfer over to conduct a signal. That's called a synapse. And these chemicals, they, they, they can signal and, and travel at a speed of 268 miles per hour. That's why people can move so fast and react so fast and, and you know, think so quickly. And not just that, neurons, they can... Um, process 2,500 synapses per second. Brain's really like a supercomputer. And with this little organ, we can do basic things to complex things. And when I say basic things, these are not just basic things. Things like we can communicate with language. We can move people to tears and even anger with our words. We can sense the slightest twitch in a person. I saw that. I saw that. We can pick up the subtlest social cues. I know some of us are like, kind of, where are we going with this? I, I picked up on that. I sensed it, all right? <laughs> the brain processes all these sensory stimuli so that we can try to know ourselves and figure out who we are, as well as people around us in the world that we're in. Now, you, we can think. And we can think complex thoughts, and this isn't even part of the complexity, but 
When you're thinking about making a big decision, how many synapses do you think are firing, right? You know, what are you, you have to weigh up all the factors, you're humming and hawing, your brain is just lighting up with neuro, nerve, neuro, neurotransmission. And uh, you have all these thoughts, these feelings, these desires, these convictions, these confusions, these tensions, all of that you're processing. And from that little mass of tissue, you can do even big, complex things. You can build castles, stand over 500 years. We can build cities, futuristic cities. Have you heard of the, the city in Saudi Arabia that's going to be built, Neom? Right? It's a, a building that's going to be 106 miles long. It's going to be 1,600 feet high and 650 feet wide. This is a building, but it's really going to be a city holding 9 million people, and it's going to be in the desert. That's what the brain can think up and actually produce. Just think about all the synapses that fire for all the things that humans have accomplished and will continue to do so. If we can detect all the synapses, the brain activity, as if they were like light pulses lighting up, the planet would be glowing. And that is a visual, if you can imagine that, that parallels what is happening in the spiritual realm as well. If we could detect spiritual activity as a light signal, let's say, the earth would be glowing. You know, maybe you've seen these photos from uh, way up in the sky, looking up from the atmosphere down to earth at nighttime, and you see like the cities where the light, where it's light at night, right? And, but then there are places like in North Korea or in Africa, there's only like small concentrated signs of light, and then the rest is dark. Why? Because there's no electricity, or it's just desert. And that's just like a, a visual of like the electrical activity that takes place. But if that spirit detector, if there was a spirit detector, the whole planet would light up and not just in the cities, but even in those barren places because the spirits are everywhere, the spiritual realm. And if you look closely, those light signals from detecting spiritual activity, it would actually be pulsing and swirling and moving and that's because not only is there spiritual activity, but there's warfare. There's a battle going on. The spirit realm is not neutral. Forces are at work against each other. And so just go back to the brain analogy. Just imagine all of the brain activity plotting sin, suppressing the truth of God, thinking that they can have a great life without God, and even doing evil. There would be spiritual forces behind all of that brain activity warring against God. It's pervasive, it's relentless, it's overwhelming. Now, why are we talking about the spiritual realm like this? Well, let me ask the question a different way. Why are we looking at the book of Revelation? Isn't it just some crazy stuff about end times? Well, through all the crazy imagery, we're getting real reminders of our basic faith. And it does that by giving us a visual 
of the invisible spiritual realm and the reality of the warfare that we're all in. It does it in a powerful way to the point where we cannot ignore it. And it really amps up and starts today in our chapter. Chapter 9. Christians need to be reminded of the spiritual warfare that we are in, especially Christians who are struggling, like the church who, have, who has been persecuted throughout history. Some were persecuted from, uh, from the outside. Some were dealing with false teaching from dividing within from the inside. And some Christians were even fighting their own temptations, battling within themselves. God thinks the church needs to see this view. This is not about some future event that's going to take place, as if none of this bears on us today. That would be a big mistake for us, because this chapter has a lot to say for us and, and, and our faith, and I hope we'll be helped by it. So with that, we're looking at the fifth and sixth trumpets today. The trumpets, they follow the same pattern as the seven seals. The first four were given to give a broad description of the fallenness of the world. And with the seals, when we got to seal five and seal six, we got a specific look at the spiritual realm in heaven. Do you remember the scene? The martyrs crying out from under the altar. How long, O oh Lord, before you judge and avenge our blood, right? And then there was the 144,000, the symbolic number, and of, of all the multitudes of saints at the end time. Now we're also, in with the trumpets, five and six, we're getting a personal behind-the-scenes look at the spiritual realm here on earth. Not just in heaven now. It's a glimpse of the spiritual warfare that's taking place in the fallen world. What has happened, what continues to happen, and, and what is happening now. It's all very real for us. So we're going to learn about the spiritual realm from this chapter. It is mysterious. It is pervasive. And I want to pro propose to you that if you believe the spiritual warfare that's taking place, well then, you will be drawn closer to God. Not further away. Let me say it another way. Understanding the pervasive, mysterious, spiritual realm draws us either closer to God or to further away. But if you're a believer, it should draw you closer to God and not further away. Okay? So I have three points for us. First one, spiritual warfare is real. With the fifth trumpet... We're getting a picture of what looks like a hopeless fight against an overwhelming enemy. Look at verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Okay, right there. You see that a star has fallen. We're told that he was given a key. And you might be thinking, what's all that about? And this is like a classic difficulty that the book of Revelation gives us. We ask all these questions, which, you know, are fine, but we overlook the real important clues. For example, he was given a key. Who is this he, this fallen star? Half of the commentators, they say that he was a fallen angel. The other half of the commentators say that he was a good angel. 
Now, you can't get more different than that. Is it a demon or an angel? My point is, is that these kinds of questions, sometimes you just don't have the answers to them, and you can keep looking and looking and not, never find it, and overlook what is the clue that this passage is all about. What is the clue? It's the word given. Okay? The, the star was given the key. By who? By God. In Revelation, the word given is huge, and we just easily overlook it. God gave him the key. And so we're reminded that we need to start seeing things from God's perspective. And specifically, he, we're learning that God allows demons to attack sinful rebels. Okay, look at verse 2. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose like smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. See, this key opens up a shaft, and out comes all this smoke, and from the smoke comes all these locusts, these flying locusts. And it's from a bottomless pit, meaning that they just keep coming out, they just keep coming out. See, they overwhelm with their numbers, but not only with their numbers, but with their tails, because they have this stinging power. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. These locusts have scorpion-like tails that sting and torment but not kill. There's a show on the History Channel called Kings of Pain. And two guys, they do all these crazy things. And in one episode, they get stung. They, they intentionally get stung by the Arizona bark scorpion, which has, the, I guess, the most deadly um, venom or toxin. And so they're describing the, the pain that as, they, as they're recording it, and you're seeing them like, ah, their forearms are like burning, they say. And they describe it as like their forearm muscles being ripped open and pouring bleach into it. The pain is like that deep and painful. And just imagine that kind of pain, not from one bite or two bites, but from a swarm of, of uh, locusts. This isn't like physical torment. I mean, it can lead to physical, but it starts spiritual. It's spiritual torment where there is a very deep unsettling within oneself, and it manifests psychologically and, again, maybe even physically. You know, there's a scene in the Gospels. Just think back to the demon-possessed man that Jesus heals. He was oppressed by legion. And Jesus healed him, and we're told in Mark's gospel that he was found sitting in his right mind again. See, but it starts with the spirit. That's the spirit realm. What we're seeing here in Revelation 9 is the spirit realm. And so the locusts, they're not literally locusts, but we're getting scary imagery of what evil spirits are like. Now, you might want to dismiss it. You don't believe in all that stuff. But, you know, God, he, he, he wants to make sure we don't. 
Stop thinking about this. So he shows John more horrifying details of these locusts. Look at verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like woman's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpion. Their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. These scorpion-like locusts, they are actually like horses prepared for battle. Just think of a cavalry. This swarm has an order to them. And they're not innocent-looking locusts looking for greens to survive, but for specific people. They're aggressive, ready for battle, hungry for blood. They're like a hornet's nest that's been kicked, and there's no end to them. They fly like they're on a mission because they're following the command of their leader, an angel named Abaddon or Apollyon. One commentator says that this may be a veiled reference to the Greek god of the day, Apollo. One commenta the commentator says, what the Greeks thought was a god to be worshipped was merely a demon. And they torment for five months. What's that about? Well, we can't be too sure. It does approximate to the life cycle of a locust. But what it definitely says to us is that this torment will be limited only for a certain time. Now, some want to believe that it's a literal five months. Do we have to believe that? Well, the writing is apocalyptic literature. There's a lot of symbolism. So the number five could be symbolic of a, a, of a definite period of time, but not necessarily five months. I could believe it if it was five months, but it doesn't have to be. But what does all this mean for us, right? Um, why do we need to know this? There is something really significant about this that I want to point out. It's not that obvious. And that is, as crazy as all of this sounds, there is something even more crazy, which is that there is spiritual warfare that God is perpetrating. God is doing this. This is God's judgment on the unrighteous. And I, I hope that you find that to be like, oh, that's good to know, right? A helpful clarification, but how do we know? Well, we're told that this was the first of three woes, and woes is a sign, is a word that always designates judgment. But also the locusts, they were told not to harm certain people. We're going to look at this more in the next point, but just so that... You can follow along. I have to mention it. Verse 4. Look at verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Right? They are not, the locusts are not to harm those who have the seal of God on their foreheads, meaning they're to, they can target other, and anyone else which are, who are the unrighteous. See, God is using demonic spiritual forces to torment unrighteous rebel sinners. Now think about that for a moment. You might think, why would God do it that way? Why does God dabble with evil? See, he's not using angels. He's using the wicked and demons to torment the wicked. 
And why does he go to the point of torment and suffering? God, who is so holy and pure, as the prophet Habakkuk would say, right? How could he do this? How do we make sense of it? Well, here's some hard truths that we actually all know this, but let me just try to bring it together for us to remind us what God is doing, okay? First, God is giving sinful man what they want. Sinful man rejects God, and so God gives them what life is like without him, and it is nothing but torment, and left unchecked, it leads to self-destruction. The righteous, they don't want to have God over them, but then they have no choice. But they're going to have these flying locusts over them, and over that is their leader, their king, Apollyon, the destroyer. See, you don't want God, you get Apollyon. And in God's sovereignty, who is in control of all things, because he's given the key to allow Apollyon to do, he's given Apollyon permission to do his thing. Apollyon is just a useful instrument to God. Okay. Second, God is showing how devastating sin is. He's giving sinful man what they want, but what do they want? Sin is really bad. You know the judgment that God pronounced on Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3? It, God simply said, God cursed the ground. It doesn't seem like, oh, sin is that bad. We might think as minimally as, oh, God just made my work more difficult, you know, by the sweat of your brow. No, it's far worse than that. Revelation 9, this chapter, we get the most vivid description and explanation of the fallenness of the world and how bad sin is. There are spiritual forces responsible for it. It's the demons, but the demons are only carrying out God's judgment. And through them, we're seeing the sinfulness of sin from this overwhelming judgment. And then lastly, it's showing us what God is really like. He is sovereign. He's giving them, giving man what they want. And no evil is outside of God's control. He is just, fair, and at the same time, he is merciful because he limits the torment. Five months. Again, we don't know if it's a literal five months doesn't matter because when does the five months start when does it end all of those kind of questions we have no answers to we assume that we can but we don't what is the significance is that god does not compromise his absolute demand for justice and yet at the same time he can show mercy god is giving punishment which needs to be given but he can limit it just think if god did not limit his punishment He just allowed the demons to continue on. They would torment everyone to death. Again, think about the demon-possessed man in the Gospels, tormented by legion. Jesus cast the legion into the pigs, and what happened to the pigs, right? They went headlong down the embankment into the river to their death. That's what would happen to everyone if God did not limit the power of these locusts. But that's what we're seeing. The unrighteous would rather die than believe in God. God did something about it. If he finally executed complete justice, we know that that's going to happen, but it just doesn't happen yet because God is showing mercy. 
God doesn't cause the evil, but he continues, he allows it to continue, but just for a limited time. All of this, we just can't know why God does it this way, the reasons or even the timing. The way I'm thinking about it is like trying to blow leaves on a windy day. You know, you have a leaf blower and you're trying to blow leaves and you usually look for like a calm, quiet day when there, there's no wind so that you can gather all the leaves together. Around here, we, we pile them all nicely on the side of the road, right? But try doing that on a windy day. It's really hard. It's pretty crazy. But it can be done. You know how? With enough time. Give it time. And you'll be able to pile all the leaves together. Now, that's an illustration for what God is doing. He's gathering his people. He's giving them time. He's giving people time to repent. And he's not going to have one errant leaf blowing around. We're basically dealing with, in this chapter, a controlled mess. What sin has done to the world and what God is doing about it. And this is a scary view. But it's a scary view that's to help the church go through what it's going through. This was written at a time when the church was persecuted, right? And why were they persecuted? Well, this is where it gets a little uncomfortable for us. Evil people are the ones who are persecuting the church opposing and slandering Christians, bringing harm to society. And some of these evil people are being tormented. God is allowing that to happen. And you might be asking, why would God allow his own people to be harmed? Again, it's one of those kinds of questions that we can raise, but it's really hard to answer. But this is what we can know. And this is what we need to be clear about. The wicked ones are the ones who are tormented not God's people. But yes, God's people can be indirectly affected while living in this world under judgment. And from this view, the persecuted church is meant to see that God has not lost control, even though the torment can spill out into real life and even have consequences for God's people. But we need to realize that right now we're in a Christianized world and so it's not, it doesn't seem that bad, but the dangers for being a Christian are real. We all know this, I think. How do we know this? Because we all know how to avoid the dangers. We all know how to be quiet and silent and sometimes to our shame. And so for us as believers, we are in spiritual warfare. But we're not being tormented. We need to know this. We, what we're, the warfare for us is being able to trust God in the face of the hardships that we experience in life. We're not going to turn away because being apart from God, well, that's very scary, this chapter is showing us. But the question is, will we cling to the Lord? That's our first point. Spiritual warfare is real. Second point, God's protection is real as well. This is the follow-up word that we need to hear. God's people have hope. 
He can protect. He will torment, but he also gives grace. Look at verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. The, the locusts, what are they to harm and not harm? They're not to harm the green grass, the plants, the trees, but only those who don't, do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Who are these people who have the seal of God? Well, we have to go back to seal 6 in the previous cycle, Revelation chapter 7, verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, some will view all of that to mean that there is only a certain number of Jewish Christians that get this seal. I'm taking this to mean all Christians who are servants of God have been sealed by him. And as a result, those who do not have the seal, they're the ones who get tormented by the locusts. And what we need to see is this very specific protection that God sovereignly declares. This vision back in chapter 9 makes clear that the green grass, that, that doesn't get touched. You would expect locusts to feed on that, but God directs them away from that and away from the sealed people of God to harm only those who are unsealed. The sealed are not tormented. We need to know that. We might be impacted, but we're not tormented. We're learning to trust God in the midst of the fallenness of the world and all the struggles that we face. That's our spiritual battle. And yet, God calls us servants because he has secured the victory over the devil in Jesus. And despite all the struggles we face, we still believe and we still want to serve. We need to know, though, that it can get really bad. It can get pretty intense as Christians, and yet we have hope. We're people who actually want to turn to God. We want to draw near to him and ask for his help. We pray to him. That's what the sealed servants of God do. We pray and we serve, no matter what happens, through thick and thin. And if we suffer, we need to believe that we're being trained and disciplined. We're not being judged. See, it's easy for me to say, oh yeah, the sealed people of God, they're protected, so there's nothing to worry about. No, we still have plenty to worry about in life. And so we need to be clear about spiritual warfare and the training that we're undergoing. For example, one concern for us that, that we need to be aware of is basically thinking, Karma is at work, okay? When something goes wrong in our lives, I'm sure some of us, we think this. We think, what did I do? What did I do wrong? And we start to shrink back, trying to hide from God. 
See, we do that because we're not clinging to the truth of God in faith, but our own thoughts and insecurities. What we need to know is that there is no superstition at play for us. There is no karma, only loving discipline. We, because we are safe under God's protection, sealed as one of his own. Maybe we can put it this way. Imagine you're a young girl, a young teenage girl. You're going through a rebellious phase trying to figure yourself out, figure your life out, right? So half of us don't have to um, imagine that because you, you've gone through it. And Oh, actually, maybe not half. Some of you weren't rebellious teenagers, right? <laughs> Very good girls. But imagine you're a young, rebellious teenage girl. Would you, be, would you rather be in a loving home with a father that cares and, gives you di- and that disciplines you? Or would you rather be out on the streets, vulnerable to where might is right and where young girls are prey? Spiritually speaking, all of us, we're either in the father's house because Jesus has brought you in, or you are out on the streets. Maybe I can bring it back in terms of the passage a little more. Just imagine how vulnerable a person is who is under attack spiritually and they don't want to turn to the Lord. Just how desperate would their situation be? I've heard from people who... They, their coworkers, they, they have to hear about their coworkers' struggles at work, and their coworkers, what they're going through, sometimes it's really bad, and they sound really helpless. But our people, we, you know, we listen, but sometimes we have to maintain our boundaries, and so we can't help them. But we want to tell them the good news about Jesus. He is their hope. And you can just imagine... Even if you would tell people, your coworkers who are suffering about Jesus, they might think, well, I don't believe in that. That's crazy. All the while, you see their lives just break down. We're meant to be helped by this word. Hearing about these trumpets. God, he's at work. He's answering the prayers of the martyrs. He is avenging their blood. And for us, we're being shown this worst-case scenario so that we would be trained to know how to deal with it. Persecution and antagonism, it's not beyond us. But if we're not under any imminent threat of persecution, we're still being taught and trained to think clearly through our hardships. We're protected by God. We're not subject to karma or torment, even though we would face struggles. I mean, isn't that what we're doing? We're trying to believe the gospel. And when we're believing the gospel, we're saying, God's anger was satisfied at the cross in Christ. So in no way he's angry with me, even if I might be messing up. The non-believer, completely helpless to the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's not our battle. That's not our warfare. The battle's been fought already and won by King Jesus. Spiritual warfare is real. God's protection is real. And lastly, repentance is real. Verse 12. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. 
Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The sixth trumpet, John hears a voice from the golden altar, four horns around each corner, commanding the angel to release four angels who are bound up at the river Euphrates. It, this is like, again, imagery. And the sense is that these four angels, they were bound, and they, but they were ready to be released to do their thing. The difference between the fifth trumpet and this sixth trumpet, there's no longer torment. Now it's torment and death. A third of mankind. This is all colorful language describing the certainty of the damage that is going to happen. These four angels, they were prepared for the day, for the hour, the day, the month, the year. It sounds as if there's a specific date when something bad is going to happen. And it's tempting for us to think there must come a time. Now, the problem with that thought is that what the, the harm that is described, it sounds pretty general, plagues. So it's really impossible to identify this specific date from the kinds of things that are going to happen. As if we could even make this assumption that we can identify this date. No, again, that's besides the point. Look at the, look at the damage that's going to happen, the, the harm that the angels will unleash. Verse 16, the number of mounted troops was twice, 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire, sapphire, sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. The power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. A third of mankind is killed, are killed by these four angels who are unbound and released by these spiritual powers. Again, horses resembling an ordered cavalry, ferocious beasts, heads of lions, poison spewing out of their mouths, fire, smoke, and sulfur, representing plagues third of mankind were killed. And it's as if this kind of death is not just a quick death, but they're tormented and then they die. So many of these deadly beasts, spiritual forces, twice, 10,000 times 10,000. Again, when we think about the numbers, we have to start to get familiar with, okay, what do these numbers mean? It means a thousand, which is a lot in, in, the, um, in the New Testament language, but not just a lot. Now we're talking about ten thousands, and not just ten thousands, but ten thousands times ten thousands, and then double it. The mathematical product, ten thousand times ten thousand, or times two, is two hundred million. But that's not the point. Back then, 200 million would have seemed like a big number, but to us, it doesn't even reach a billion, right? 
But the point is, is that this is a huge number. I like to think of it as like Dr. Evil in the Austin Powers movies. He asks for a ransom figure, and he thinks, hmm, a million dollars. Like, that's a, a big amount. Again, these figures, it's repetitive to emphasize the overwhelming power of these horses. We're meant to think 10, but not just 10, we're meant to think 1,000. And not just 1,000, but 1,000 times 10,000 times 10,000, and then double it. In the simplest way, using numbers and words, the concept is that this is an overwhelming and devastating power at work. And why were these people killed off? Why did God kill a third of humanity? What did they do? We can know based on those who weren't killed. And there's a lesson for us in which we'll get to. But look at verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Those who have survived, they remain unrepentant for their idolatry and vices murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, theft. See, those who died, they were being judged for their sin, but not just for their sin, but for their unrepentance. Those who remain alive, well, they still are unrepentant. Now, it's a good thing, as we think about this chapter, that most unbelievers, they're not like the ones who are so bad But there are people like that out there. We can't be naive. There are people who deserve this kind of punishment. There's the underworld, the black market, the drug trade, human trafficking, the criminal enterprise, dark web. All of that, nothing but spiritual sewage. But you know what? They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the gospel and have the opportunity to repent. Turn from their ways, change their minds, which is what repentance means. Recognize their wrongdoing, their unrighteousness, and turn and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, whether you're wicked or nice, in fact, unbeliever or believer, repentance and faith is how we are received by God. And so more than any of the questions that we might have about this passage, uh, because there are plenty of passages, um, questions that are generated, this final passage highlights the power of repentance. It might even, if you can look at it a certain way, this passage might even suggest that repentance was an option for those who survived, those who were spared. Maybe not, but at the very least, it's teaching us that the unrepentant who died were being judged and a judgment that they deserved. And for all of us reading this, 
knowing this spiritual reality of why they died, would people reconsider repentance from idolatry and wickedness? It's a word for us. And for the sealed, for who that's who we are. This is a reminder of the difference between those who are sealed and unsealed. We're sinners too, but we repent. That's what makes us different. We're not innocent. We're not perfect. We sin, but we repent. And I mean, aren't we thankful? Aren't you so thankful that you have the opportunity to repent, to turn back to God and know that you would be received by him? What does that mean for us today as we try to bring things to a close? Well, when was the last time you were convicted of your sin? I mean, like, recognizing your sin before God where you experienced true repentance, not regret, not remorse, not, you know, being upset with yourself for failing, but for having offended God, convicted of your sin, but you still turn to him knowing that you can't remain that way. When was the last time you were convicted of sin and experienced true repentance? You know, I hope our weekly confession, that, you know, that's, that's, a, that's training us to recognize our sin, to confess it. And I hope that that's a time that we take seriously, that it cuts you to the heart. But here's also what I suspect. You know, if you're not praying for righteousness, you're probably not aware of your unrighteousness. And so you're probably not convicted by your sin. And so then you don't have opportunity to repent. So let me just remind us, every, all of us, of our faith. We're sealed. We're the people of God because we have made that first and most glorious turn back to God in repentance. And that repentance, that's a way of life for us. Because this is also a Reformation weekend as well. Let me quote Martin Luther. He wrote the, the iconic words in his 95 Theses. That was his line in the sand against the Roman Catholic Church calling them to repent. And so his opening line for the 95 Thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Okay, so that's how we're going to end. This is a reassuring vision from God to his persecuted and weary church. They would be persecuted, they would face suffering, but they still had opportunity to repent for their own sin. They weren't just focused on those bad evildoers out there, nor on their pain that they suffered. Their suffering was not an excuse that, I don't have to pursue righteousness, or I don't have to think about my own sin and feel bad for myself. Brothers and sisters, if we know what the enemy is like, the spiritual realm that we're in and the warfare that we're facing, we will want to turn back to God quickly. We will want to repent and cling to him and believe and grab a hold of him for dear life. So having gone through this passage, knowing what the spiritual realm is like, where do you want to be? Right now, 
How are you feeling? Humbled? Fear and trembling before God? Cut to the heart for the sin you might be ignoring? Wanting to experience his protection and assurance and comfort? Christ died for us so that we would return to him. And would we do that in humble repentance? Again, every week we get trained. We are taking part in the Lord's Supper to remind us that we come before him, come before God through Christ with repentance. And I trust all of us believers will wholeheartedly and eagerly return to the Lord. We'll do that together. And if you're not a believer among us, well, would you join us in that? At least in prayer. It might be your first time. Because on the surface, people might have a lot of brain activity, like they have it all together, but what's going on on the inside? Would you return to your maker? Let's all do that in prayer and then in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you for the vividness, the color, the imagery, how all of this is meant to get us to think about you and these basic faith truths that we hold to. And we thank you for the power of the Spirit that who helps us to understand this word, but not just understand it, but to believe it. And so we pray that you would indeed, Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin, convict us of righteousness, convict us of judgment. Do your work in us. Help us to believe this word that it does apply to each and every one of us right here, right now, today. And thank you, O oh God, that we can turn to you and we can be safe in your arms. May we be reassured of that as we take part in the Lord's Supper now. Grow us in our understanding of the spiritual realm, of the power that we have, how we can be strong and stand firm, but also to be aware of the powers that work against us. All this we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.